We're in the section in your syllabi on grace and granite for um, the study of the man of God and what it means to uh, walk with God in a way that demonstrates our love for him. And we've talked about fleeing sin. We've talked about being dependent in prayer. We come now to a familiar subject of fearing God as a man of God. Open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs and we'll begin, obviously, in this most basic of and foundational of truths for this look at the fear of God this morning as men. It's interesting to me that when Solomon wrote his son and his sons, he just piled up words that really are the they're so crucial when we think about um, teaching young people. I was with my granddaughter yesterday, a little birthday time, and just sitting and talking about um, long-term perspective and the needed wisdom that every young person will, will have to practice and know. And Solomon, in the opening section of what will be really 300 plus sayings and a host of others that weren't even inscripturated that he just sat down and wrote to his children. I think about that often. What, if your kids were asked, what is it that you, you spent most of your time verbalizing? Would they be able to pile up words like Solomon does here, that, that really do uh, focus a young person's life, young adult, uh, where, they, where they ought to be focused, the things that matter most. And that's what Solomon does here, right out of the gate. These Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, Proverbs 1. And then just look at the way these terms are piled up. To know wisdom and instruction. So to know the wise principles and to apply them properly, to discern the sayings of understanding. So to be able to discern the teachings and, and how they are to be separated from anything that might be false. To receive instruction in wise behavior. So conduct is involved, not just welcoming words and concepts, not just building up uh, information, but actually how to practice it wisely and to receive instruction in righteousness and justice and equity from God's perspective, not cultural ideas of these notions. Notice to give prudence to, to the simple or the naive, someone who doesn't yet have a way to filter out what is bad and only accept what is good. That's the idea of the naive there. We give prudence to, to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. And then look at this, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, that is to say, um, sayings that have a principle in it for life, and then the words of the wise and their riddles, to understand them. Solomon is, you know, he could have just said, here are the Proverbs, 
and these will be important for your life. But it's like he just could not in his mind as pen went to parchment get away from the piling up of these important terms. It's like he's overwhelming his child with these concepts. Wisdom, instruction, discernment, understanding, receive it, wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, knowledge, discretion. Hear it and increase in this learning. Understand it and acquire wise counsel. The sayings and principles, grasp them. And I like that because this is, I guess, in one sense, illustrating the relentlessness that is needed in a man's life as he influences those in his care. It's no wonder then that all of that culminates in something you might not expect. You might not expect that it would culminate in um, the idea of where this all begins. In fact, you might imagine that if he's talked about increasing in learning and having wisdom and acquiring it, he, he might go on with the instruction. But he, he piles up these terms and then he goes right back to, well, the foundation of where all this begins, you can't have learning, you can't have understanding, you can't have discretion unless you know where it all begins. And that's why verse 7 says what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So he sets the young mind and the young heart upon fearing God. And then he sets it in contrast to its opposite. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We, we could say that he's essentially told his son, fools don't fear God. It is foolish to imagine meaning in life, any part of our life, that, that you don't have this first obligation to respond to who made you. So when he then goes on to say, listen up to your father's instruction, don't forsake your mother's teaching, these are the graceful wreaths around your head, the ornaments about your neck. And when sinners come and do the thing that I'm telling you they're going to do, I was telling this to my granddaughter yesterday, sinners are going to entice. Your heart is the worst part of it because sin is not static. Sin is, sin is a dynamic that you don't have to go find it. It's in there and it's going to come and it's already coming at the young teen years. They already know that. They're just trying to hide it, figure it out, stumble over it, wonder why they have so much guilt because they're feeding it already. I mean, that's what's going on inside a young teen. And so it's, you don't have to convince a young person if you just talk about it enough that these things are not static and you didn't have to go find them. And your innocent little world at home doesn't change the fact that your heart inside is filled with idolatry and a love of sin. It's already there. But Solomon says, 
Look, I want you to know if you will listen and hear and not forsake, it's going to grace your life because sinners are coming to entice. So he sets the fool and the sinner into this parallel idea of they don't fear God. So we could say the first thing they're going to entice you to do is to just jettison your fear of God. Just jettison any notion that you have to live in this dependent relationship with the creator who made you. I think sometimes when we're trying to help our kids as men, we... We, uh, we begin at other places and really ought to begin here, just continually and relentlessly saying, you should look for signs in your life of either fearing God or foolishness, which doesn't fear God. You ought to look in your early life for signs that you love the instruction and wise sayings because they come from God and to fear him because you want to know those things, that is the beginning of real understanding. Everything else is not understanding. You can learn about the culture, you can go on digital media and gather all the information you want, you can learn from your peers, you can listen to the instruction of your friends, you can gather up what you think other families live like and why your family ought to be this or this or this. You can gather up all that you want, but without the fear of God, none of that matters. It's all nonsense, it goes nowhere, and in fact, destroys. So. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, for our purposes, and maybe we ought to just now take it to what Jesus says about the fear of God. Look, look for a moment at Luke's gospel, Luke 12, where Jesus, in talking with the disciples, brought up some sinners of the worst kind, the religious pagan, the religious sinner, the Pharisee who has no fear of God before their eyes while claiming a relationship with God. I mean, this is the worst version of someone who doesn't fear God, who imagines that what God says about their heart condition is not true of them. This is why they hated Christ so much. He literally told them, you do not fear God. If you did, you would be listening to what I'm saying about your heart. If you knew the fear of the Lord in all of its realness, you would, you would know because of what God says about the human heart. You would know that's true of you. Because you reject that, you are the quintessential version of no fear of God. And so verse one, under these circumstances, it says, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples, primarily or preeminently or first, these words, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Everything God does in the life of his people is going to be the triumphant word on everything. And any, everything else that is 
not of God is going to be exposed. Those are the principles that Jesus is illustrating there. Everything people speak that is the truth of God in the fear of God is going to rise up and be the dominant um, truth that rules. And everything that's whispered that is not in fear of the Lord, that's going to be exposed by the truth. So then... He says in verse 4, then I'm saying to you, based upon the comparison with the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, I'm saying to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, this has been sometimes confusing for Christians. We have, we have models of sanctification that say there should only be a motivation to grow in Christ out of love for him uh, or affection for Christ. We have these models of sanctification that don't like to talk about hell. It's interesting, I even heard one pastors say that that there should never be anyone who comes to Christ out of the fear of hell. And it's bizarre to me because Jesus says right here that you are to be motivated by the fear of the one who can send you to hell. Now, I get it. Sometimes people are trying to say we shouldn't... Uh, proclaim Jesus or profess Jesus because our concept of eternal punishment is something naive or childish or juvenile. You know, I was, I was at a church one time when I was a, a kid. Uh, we had this family, you know, we all went to the Baptist church. We had this family in the cul-de-sac, these neighbors, and they went to this charismatic church. And I, I was allowed to go once with them to their children's deal. I must have been about nine or ten years old. And and we sat in there, and, and of course, there were all kinds of weird stuff going on. Those were back in the days before the, you know, I mean, I, it was, the charismatic renewal movement began in 1960, so about 10 years later, it was starting to get some traction, and this church was one of those. So all these people were saying weird things around me, and I'm just a 10-year-old kid. I don't know what they're saying. It's just bizarre, and they're putting their hands on us as little kids, and it's just strange. You get in trouble for that nowadays, but... But then they had this guy come in, and I'm not kidding you, he turned the lights down, and he had this, uh, <clears throat> this trash can on the left over here, and he had this uh, big open door with this light on the right, and this represented heaven, and it was, it was all sweetness and, and beauty and flowers, and, and over in the trash can, he lit this little fire. <laughs> And we're all little kids sitting there. He's like, which door do you want to go through? And I'm like, I want the flowers. And so he made us raise our hand. We all professed Jesus. And, and, and off we went to heaven, I guess. And I was, of course, shocked. I told my dad about the whole thing. He's like, what? You know? And so we didn't, I didn't go back to their church. <laughs> I was never allowed back to their children's program. And, and of course, for decades, 
uh, ministries would do that kind of stuff in children's classes, you know. They'd, and I, I understand that there's a sense in which people are saying you shouldn't be motivated by some cheesy, superficial thing like that. However, what Jesus says here is very important. That being a child of God who knows God and who loves God it does not eliminate the fear of God. Now you say, well, 1 John 4 says perfect love casts out fear. That's true. We have no fear of judgment when the love of Christ has come to us in the gospel. We have no fear of judgment. But it's very interesting that the Christian is fearing God even when they have no fear of judgment. They still have a right and biblical fear of God. Why do we know that? Because, first of all, we just saw Solomon say the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So the perfect love that casts out fear in 1 John 4, that is not casting out the fear of the Lord or you'd be casting out the beginning of knowledge. So clearly in scripture, we have to understand these concepts next to one another. The fear of God in the hearts of his people is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is, it's foundational to our understanding of our relationship to our creator as creatures. It is foundational to what motivates us to live for his glory, and it is the, the core of what brings the believer true practical joy and comfort. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 19.9, later Solomon will say the fear of the Lord is clean and enduring, or sorry, the psalmist, clean and enduring forever. Fear of the Lord endures forever. To fear him, to fear his word, to know his word, his word coming to us, all of this is spoken of as the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, the depth and height of who he is. All of that endures forever. Genesis 20, verse 11. You remember when, <clears throat> when Abraham lied to the pagan king, telling him that, Sarah was his sister. Though it was a foolish choice, he ultimately admitted what his concern was in Genesis 20, verse 11. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they're going to kill me because of my wife. Surely there's no fear of God in this place. Christians knew that it is pagan to have no fear of God. It is Christian to fear God. In Exodus 20, 20, Moses standing before the people at Mount Sinai and the earth is rumbling under their feet in a frightening way and the mountain is, is billowing with smoke and a wave after forceful wave of the elements speaking out in thunder and lightning and all that's exploding. Moses says to the people in Exodus 20, verse 20, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Wow. So that the fear of God would remain with you with the purpose that you would not sin. So 
when we think about the fear of God and passing it on to the next generation, a proper fear of God is a deterrent to sin. That's how it is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of bringing understanding of who God is, therefore a right view of what sin is, and therefore a right understanding of what sin does in separating us from God, and a right understanding of how we're reconciled to God in the proper fear of him. The second thing that Moses' statement illustrates is that a proper fear of God can coexist with not fearing judgment. Do not fear. I want the fear of God to remain. You don't fear the judgment of God because you're seeing his power in shaking the elements at the same time. Your proper fear is what settles you, is what calms you. If you fear God, you won't sin, and therefore no judgment will come to you. So we could say, don't be afraid of judgment, but fear God. That's because in salvation, the, the grace of our salvation, which protects us from the wrath to come, teaches us to fear God in the truest biblical sense. Look back at, at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 for a moment. Just continuing to think through our understanding here before we talk about some implications. Deuteronomy 4, <clears throat> verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding. There's that great terminology again. That is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous? Remember when Solomon said to discern righteousness? A nation that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I'm setting before you today. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, and when Yahweh said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. The whole purpose of the instruction of God the safeguard grace, safeguarding grace of his law to his people, the life that it produces, right? A nation of people who look to him, want to hear from him, depend upon him, and 
revere him in that sense. An entire instruction given to God's people and passed to the next generation was ultimately with the purpose that we would learn this principle of fearing him all the days we live on the earth. So when corruption begins to manifest itself in our fallen condition, it is cutting at that very issue. I was just trying to boil things down yesterday to a grandchild and say, look, let's make it simple. To fear God is to pursue the knowledge of him and to pursue submissiveness to him. So everything that you're experiencing as a young person in this new young adult development that's going on, the way that you view parents, the way you view instruction and rules and constraints, the way you view all of this, it is because the God, has, God has given you a grace in your life so that you will learn to fear him all the days you live on the earth. It, this isn't a tug of war between humans on a horizontal level. This isn't the idea that I don't like what this rule is and I would like to get around this and how come I can't have this person in my life and why can't I go do this activity? It's not a tug of war between a power struggle between human beings on a horizontal level. All of these constraints are a grace gift in, in the law of God given to you so that you might learn this supreme ultimate principle to revere the God who gave them because of the corruption inside of us. Paul would later say in Romans, when he gives that Romans 3 rap sheet of humanity, he says in verse 10, there is no fear of God. Verse, verse uh, The end of that section, by the way, it begins in verse 10. There's no fear of God before your eyes. Zero. As pagans. No fear. He's just pulling in Psalm 36. Verse 1, there's no fear. The whole accusation that Satan makes ultimately, I mean, for all the ways he charges the elect and, you know, goes before the throne and makes these accusations against the elect, for all of them, if you boil down even Satan's accusations into the ultimate accusation, it's the very thing he said to God about Job. Job said, Job fears you in a pretense. He doesn't really fear you. He, f he reveres the protection that you give him. He, he says he fears you, but it's in a pretense because you, you care for him in a way that keeps him from the real tests of his faith. You coddle him. That was Satan's accusation against the character of God. You coddle your people. He was simply claiming that Job's profession of fear in God wasn't genuine. So now you know what the real issue is. If that's going to be Satan's ultimate accusation, then that's going to be the supreme issue that God wants to strengthen in his people. Psalm 67 verse 7 says that the entire purpose of salvation is so that all the ends of the earth 
may fear him. In the kingdom, and of course in eternity, all who have been redeemed and are the redeemed remnant, praising God for all eternity, will have the proper fear of our God in our hearts, permeating us perfectly. Or so says the psalmist. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 11 says that when Messiah comes, he'll dispense within and among his people the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I love that. Look at Jeremiah 32, just to look at a key major prophet and what he says about this. Jeremiah 32, verse 38, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. There's the eternal covenant. There's the promise of God. And the promise is that when we have our changed heart and live with God in that perfect way, that new covenant heart that we have now that will finally realize its full expression in eternity, it will have the fear of God deep within our hearts. Verse 39, I'll give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Notice what the fear of God does. It's, it is security for eternity so that they will not turn away from me. The fear of God in a Christian hems us into the security of our redemption. That's how you're secure. If you're, if you're looking for evidence to bring assurance to the heart, and if you're looking for the theology of the security of the believer, it's grounded first in your fear of God. Of course. We always say, if you want to know if someone's saved, do they love the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no way to love the Lord Jesus Christ genuinely without the fear of the Lord. Do they have a desire to know him in his word? That's right. If you fear the Lord, that's the beginning of knowledge. And Jesus has, in Christ, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you want to know him in his word. Do you hate sin? Of, of course, I fear the effects of sin. I see the effects of sin. I know that judgment is coming. And even 2 Peter chapter 3 says that if you know things are going to be destroyed the way God's going to destroy them and deal with sin, how, in, in what kind of fear should you conduct yourself? Yeah, you conduct yourself in fear because you know things are going to be destroyed in this way. It's a great text that indicates that the fear of the Lord is behind our hatred of sin as well. And then your love for God's people, that's right. If Christ loved us and permeated in our hearts a love for his, his purposes and his kingdom and his people and redemption and the gospel, all of that is rooted in our fear of God. So to go away from the church is to demonstrate that we don't fear God. To 
not hate sin and strive to deal with it is to demonstrate that we don't fear God. If somebody has a difficult time saying outright with clear terminology, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody has a tough time saying that, I sometimes immediately wonder, do do you understand the gospel? Because the gospel puts the fear of God into the heart, out of which comes then this expressed love to Christ that's so easily verbalized for the Christian. I love him. I love Christ. Then you must fear God. Yes, I fear God. That's why I think it's confusing to have a sanctification model because I think it backflows a a confusion into the gospel that says that we have to look inward for some evidence of some feeling of passion about these things. That's dangerous ground. What we ought to be looking for is evidence of the fear of the Lord, evidence of the love of Christ rooted in a fear of God. In Luke chapter 1, when... When Mary was talking about the gospel that was going to come, verse 49 and 50, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. So you see the evidence of one upon whom the mercy of God has come in the gospel is the fear of the Lord. Guys, we got to teach this to our wives and to our children. It has to permeate our homes. The problem with the young adult years today is literally they, they are not coming to grips with the gospel first by the fear they ought to have of God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They're not being told about it. I don't mean in all pockets. There are lots of faithful parents, even so many in our ministry. And all of you men who've been under these dynamics of the word of God for so long, we know the importance of this. But even we can get confused when when the influences of the culture and, and our family is starting to reel from these things. We can sometimes try to go at it horizontally instead of take them right back to the foundation. Does our home fear God? Does this house fear God? Do we revere the statutes of God? Look at 2 Corinthians 7.1. Just looking continually at how this fleshes itself out. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, and he had just talked about the ministry that was commended to him to give this great grace of God. He didn't want it to be in vain. He had given it to the church at Corinth. People had come to Christ, but there were some who thought 
that they could profess Christ and still have a relationship with the world. And he said there's no relationship between light and darkness, no harmony between Christ and Belial. And having promises, beloved, then let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're told by Paul when he wrote to the Philippians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. People today who want to say the only motivation for coming to Christ and serving Christ is, is love for him are just mistaken. The Bible says a whole lot about the love of Christ as a motivation. It says a whole lot about the fear of God and fear of judgment as a motivation. It says a whole lot about thankfulness and gratitude and the humility that comes from seeing sin rightly and the crushing nature of it. The law of God itself works a motivation by showing us our sin. Isn't that the whole point of the law of God? So that sin may become as exceedingly sinful as it is in the sinner's mind and heart. Why else would we need the law of God? I'll tell you what, what we do with sin, deny, 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 excuse, excuse, blame shift, blame shift, downplay, turn it down, don't listen to it, I don't want to be accountable. That's the corrupt heart. The law of God brings the clarity of it. What greater motivation to the gospel is the crushing nature of your sin when the Spirit opens your eyes to convict you of it? At that moment, you're not thinking necessarily about some high-octane, wonderful, glad, happy thoughts. You're crushed, as James would say in James 4, be miserable and mourn and weep. Yeah, of course. You're caused to fear God and fear judgment. And then when you realize that grace is what's doing that work, and then you see the Savior for who he is at the work of the cross as a substitute, and you see the wrath of holy God poured out on an innocent one who's given himself for you, the fear of God doesn't go away, it cranks up. You could have judged me. I deserve that judgment, and yet you poured it out to the last drop on the innocent Savior who gave himself for me. Your fear of God just cranks up in the gospel. Look at 1 Peter 1. You see this so powerfully when Peter thinks about the cross of Christ and he writes this here. Notice verse 17. He had just said, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I'm holy. He takes us all the way back to the holiness of God in Leviticus and the, the two realities of the, the presentation of the book of Leviticus, if you want to know the two realities that it is presenting, it is that to get to God, you must be holy. To be in his presence, a child of his, one of his, and not judged, you must be holy, completely perfectly holy to have any access to God. And therefore, the second message of Leviticus is that the only way to come to him prescribed by a holy God is sacrifice. 
That is the thematic element of Leviticus pulled now all the way into 1 Peter's letter here. Be holy in all your behavior because like the one who called you, be holy because he is holy. And look at verse 17. If you call him father, man, if you address holy God as an intimate in your life, one whom you know, one whom you can come to, one whom you can freely access and have an intimate relationship enough to call him father, if that's how you address him, and if you know when you address him that he is the one, Peter says, who impartially judges according to each one's work, man, he's impartial. It will be a testing of our works. You say, but all my works are covered. That's right. Isn't that marvelous? And yet all your works will be tested by the presence of God and the presence of Christ. It won't be for judgment, but look, until we get to glory, man, some of our works, it's all flesh. And so Peter says, because he's holy, and you address him as father in the gospel, and you know he impartially judges, then conduct yourselves in reverent fear during your time of your stay on earth. And what will be your theology driving it? Well, there it is, verse 18. Knowing. Here's your theology. You know that you were not redeemed with perishable things. You didn't redeem yourself? Oh, that's right, I couldn't. Like silver or gold, like he's not referring merely to money, he's referring to earthly things that human beings typically value. There isn't anything of the highest value on earth with which you could then redeem yourself or bring as an offering. You weren't redeemed that way, your theology tells you that. You know this in the gospel. It was a useless, meaningless way of life inherited from your forefathers. That's right, we're born into it. It was our inheritance by nature, futile, useless. You were not redeemed with that, but you were redeemed, verse 19, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Why is that striking? Because if redemption's gonna happen, then there's gonna to have to be an offering made, and yet there is a blameless one and spotless one that wouldn't have to make an offering for himself. He doesn't have to make an offering for himself. He's spotless and blameless. But his blood, precious, is our redemption. And he was loved before the foundation of the world, foreknown, foreloved, but he's appeared in these last times, not for himself, but for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So then what's the command? Conduct yourselves in fear, right? It's because of the cross that we fear. That's why I told you, he says in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.11, since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's right. 
We don't lose our fear of God. It cranks up. Look at Revelation 15 for a moment. Revelation 15, verse 3, they sing, they sang a song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This is a scene in heaven. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Now you have an association of the reverence and fear of God in a scene in heaven associated with what it means to bring him glory, to ascribe to him his perfections and greatness. For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Your judgments have been manifested, literally. Your judgments. You get to chapter 19, and you see the 24 elders and the four living creatures falling down and worshiping God who sat on the throne. And this is what they say in verses 4 and 5. Amen. Alleluia. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. In heaven, in the victory, when Christ has come, set up his kingdom, we're all in a state of perfected holiness, worshiping God, and we're singing to one another because we all fear him. So we now know we fear God in two ways. We fear God, and this is important. Deep inside the believer is the knowledge of who God is, and therefore there is a holy dread of God who is judge. Not a personal fear that we will be judged. Fear of that kind is in our pagan heart prior to conversion. But there is a dread because he is judge. Israel rightly experienced the sense of dread in that God is judge. He has the holy character to see sin and judge it. He has the power and sovereign majesty to bring his authority down upon any and all. And he has judged the enemies against him. In that sense, we conduct ourselves in fear because we deserved judgment but didn't get it. We got mercy. When judgment came in the first church discipline case in Acts 5.11, fear came upon all the church. Came upon the church. Why would they fear the judgment? They're already saved. They're already converted. Because God could judge but showed mercy. And even in a chastening dynamic to the church, like was demonstrated there with the taking of the lives instantly of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit, fear came upon the church because God can judge. And he is the judge, and he's the rightful judge. So there is in our fear of him this understanding of who he is that you never lose. There's no casual 
flippant response to God. I think, I think in some measure, the second way we fear him, which is a reverence because he's Savior, sometimes uh, it, it becomes this one-sided way that we understand God. It, it's it's kind of what made the gospel in the pragmatic movement so what we often call shallow, superficial, or cheesy. It was this idea that we can go before God because we've been redeemed, and in our celebrative joy, um, it, it kind of turns to a casual, flippant, and in some ways even an irreverent way that we gather in his name. And again, there's no prescription in scripture that services, that uh, worship services have one kind of somber look or one kind of celebrative look. Cultures are different, peoples are different, and, and I suppose we could say there's, there's both going on in the body of Christ all the time. There is a, a knowledge that he is judge and can judge, so there's this sobriety to our life. And then there is this celebrative joy and high praise and excitement that, um, that we experience because he is the Savior who didn't judge us but gave us mercy. Both are true. You say, does a church achieve perfect balance in those things? Are you kidding? We're sinners. No, none of us achieve perfect balance. None of us are perfect balance. We're still being sanctified. So a church is a church. It's leaders down to the newest believers in the group. We're all still being sanctified. We can't achieve perfect balance. But I, I'm, I'm saying that these two dimensions both exist. And we must observe both of them in our lives. A holy and reverent knowledge of who God is and that he can judge and he would be just to judge. And so when you look at the cross, do you not see the dread of sin and the dread of God's holiness? when it came down on his son on a sinner's behalf yes we look at that and we say he's our savior and he's taking our sin upon himself and and so for that we rejoice but it also is a reminder of the cost of sin and so there's this holy dread of sin and the fear of God as judge. There's mixed in our hearts as believers this fear and reverence of our great God. And it's informed by the cross because justice and mercy met perfectly at the cross. And so both are in us. We fear God first because of his justice, his holy justice, and we fear God second because of his holy mercy, his mercy, reverence, and honor.
Back to Luke's gospel then, just for a moment. Luke 12, Jesus had pointed out that the Pharisees' lack of fear of God <clears throat> lived within the package of the grossest hypocrisy because they pretended to know God. Verse 2, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Jesus had said this right on the warning of, right on the, warning of the uh, hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven, the hypocrisy of it. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. So to flee hypocrisy and to fear God is to remember that God will uncover everything hidden. God's very nature, his, his sovereignty, his purity, and his holiness, his precision. I, I don't think we often use that word about God, but his precision. He's a precise God. He is unchanging and he is full infinite knowledge and comprehension he is perfect clarity therefore he's a precise god his infallible and inerrant truth his perfect and righteous justice the ultimate power that is his and his majestic glory all of this must be displayed perfectly because it's his very nature and it demands therefore that all things be made evident for what they really are. If that's the kind of God we serve, then, then that's what's going to happen when he brings all things to its culmination. Everything will be exposed for what it really is because God is the only thing that's pure. So we fear God in that sense. We know everything is before him. We live quorum Deo, he sees it all. He knows the heart, he knows the motives. And he's infinitely aware because he has infinite knowledge of all things. He has comprehensive knowledge. Many, many years ago, the, and this is why Satan loves to attack the doctrine of God's, his omniscience and his foreknowledge. <clears throat> Satan loves to attack those things with doctrines that say God doesn't really know everything comprehensively like that, but he does. And it's an attack because Satan is trying to get his people, God's people, to stop fearing that. Therefore, you'll stop living as though you're living in his presence all the time. And so that's what Jesus tells the disciples here. I want you to know that whatever has been said in the dark is going to be brought into the light. Whatever's been whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. From gospel truth that can't be snuffed out to wicked things that need to be exposed in all the precise reality of what they really are, to show what they really are. You know, I think about, I think about truths like that when, when we think about conspiracies, man, you know, we all have our certain level, you know, you'd be talking with other brothers and sisters in Christ and you'll find out who's, you know, where they're at on the spectrum of conspiracy theories and this and that. And I used to work for the government, so, you know, I'm, 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 a, bit, uh, I'm a bit more dubious when it comes to believing anything they say. <laughs> and uh, so sometimes people will say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Why do we use that terminology? Because we know that stuff goes on, but we don't know what. And, and certainly there are people that go 
store up food in the mountains and get in the cave and we would say that they're not living in reality. But then you have other people who who believe anything. They're just as gullible as can be. And we're trying to be somewhere in between, you know. We're not we're not uh, full on believing that there's some something like the movies portray all the time. And on the other hand, we're not gullible either. But I love what these truths do to Christians. What Jesus said is that there he's the ultimate conspiracy revealer. So what we ought to say sometimes to people is, well, whatever is going on that we don't see, whoever's conspiring, however secret, oh, the deep state, the deep state. You know, the deep state, God looks at the human deep state and it's a millimeter deep. There's nothing deep about it. And Jesus says that right here. There's no deep state to God. Whatever has been covered up will be revealed. It won't remain hidden. God is to be feared for his infinite knowledge doesn't matter what goes on in God's universe under his sovereign will that we have trouble sorting out, that we can't fully explain, can't solve. I love reading books about high-end things that go on behind the scenes. It's just an interest I've always had. But at the end of a volume on some conspiratorial dynamic that went on in these high channels of influence around the world. Whatever wasn't solvable, I still think. But my God knows, I was thinking about these video clips that come up in your news feed about, about the current uh, pro-abortion antics of these foolish women who don't fear God and they're bragging and having parties about this and some of them even blaspheming the creation and design of God by saying, I'm going to get pregnant just so I can murder a baby. And as they're saying those things, I keep thinking of what what was said in Genesis of Abel's blood when he was murdered by his brother. It cries out from the ground. The blood of those aborted children cries out as a testament against those women. And on that day, they're going to face that. No more bragging, no more any of that. We must have a, a God that is majestic and to be feared. If he is allowing all those things to go on for evil to run its course because he knows what he is going to bring to light, there isn't an infant conceived in a womb in all of human history that God has not known, created, and understands and will bring to light. Not one. That 
is profound and causes reverence. And it is hypocrisy, Jesus says, to not understand that as his disciples. Nothing has ever been done that won't be revealed. God has fixed a day, Acts 17. How many of God's truths have people been exposed to? How often have the glories of his creation stared people in the face? And he's perfectly just and righteous and omniscient in his character, recording every single response of the heart and the life. How many words spoken, thoughts germinating? And so to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing, as R.C. Sproul said, wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. There's no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze, end quote. Wow. And then we're to understand, notice Jesus says in verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. After that, have no more they can do. I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he's killed has authority to cast into hell. I'll tell you, fear him. We fear God because everything's going to be brought to light. We fear God because he holds the keys to eternal judgment. So we're going to look at that uh, next time. He holds the keys to eternal judgment. As we're continuing to build on the man of God that fears God. All right, so Matthew, you ready with that microphone? Let's, let's um, what's on your mind? What, what do you want to talk about? Right down here. Dr. Dave Nauru. Thank you, Pastor, for clarifying all that because I was wrestling with Luke 12 versus uh, the 5 because it has the aroma of manipulation, a tactic that people can use to, um, like you said when you were in 9th, 10th grade, the fear-mongering of um, scaring people to be saved. Yeah. But you tied it so well into our depravity and how he is adjusting. God is... Uh, you had said cause of sin and so it produces a healthy fear of God because of his justice and it's a great way to be able to witness the people not because of um, manipulating them for the fear of hell but to understand that his justice can't live with that so and the only answer to the being afraid of judgment is God because Jesus then goes immediately into God will take care of you he takes care of sparrows isn't it interesting that he says, fear him who can judge both body and soul in hell. And just a couple verses later says, do not fear. That's very interesting. He is setting them in the juxtaposition again. So he's saying, revere in that dread sense that God is a judge who could judge the sinner. But you who come to God to be rescued, you have nothing to fear with regard to his judgment. And don't fear the human beings. Don't fear what they can do to you. They can only hurt your body. We'll, we'll talk about that next time. It's just it's interesting to me, as I've mentioned to you before, that when, when uh, 
martyrdoms and persecutions, tortures have been experienced in human history. And of course, you know, Hebrews 11 records uh, that that happened, that has happened throughout the lives of God's people. Not only were the prophets killed of old, but throughout the halls of the faithful, they have been people of whom the world was not worthy because they stood under this kind of torture. But I've always thought that when Satan is doing those kinds of things, God already preserves the faith of his people. And so in those moments, they don't, God's people do not fear the, in some eternal dreadful way, the, the recanting of their faith because God preserves their faith in the moment. So that's why Jesus says all they can do and nothing more is snuff out your physical life. That's all they can do. That's the only harm they can do. And the, the interesting point Jesus is, is making is that when you look at eternity in light of physical harm here on earth and death, the two do not have us, they're as poles apart as you could imagine. Don't fear this. It's temporal, nothing compared to eternity, which is what Paul would later say, all the suffering that you experience in this life is not worthy to be compared. So the most Satan can get out of us in a torture is under, under duress is some verbalization that we're weak and frightened and like Luther before the council on that first day, uh, I don't know what to answer, or like Peter in the courtyard, I don't know the man. That's the most that can be gotten out of a Christian, a genuine Christian, is a verbal, under duress and suffering, a verbal testimony. That's the most. And you remember the Scottish reformers that were burned at the stake, you know, they, they self-punished if they ever had a moment where they verbally said something of a recantation. It was just their way of saying, you I should never have verbalized it and give them the satisfaction, <laughs> you know, just before they're burned at the stake. So, you know, Rogers and Latimer and those guys, that's how they felt. They felt about it. But they knew all you can really do is, you know, kill my body, torture me. Yeah, it would be painful and hurtful, but that's all you can really do. My soul cannot be touched. My faith cannot be touched. You know, Job sat for seven days without a word, grieving while his friends sat around watching the grief. It was a way of expressing that I don't want food. I don't want social anything. I don't want life. I just want to sit here in the misery of the loss. So in one sense, he was expressing that Things can be done to you that set you down and all your appetites are gone. Yet will I praise him, though he slay me. So he didn't lose his faith. God even gave that testimony. In all this, Job did not lose his faith. Even though Job had to repent of questioning God's goodness and had to be rebuked for it, he didn't lose his faith. Therein lies the same thing. His faith never 
Yeah, so it's interesting. You've got this tension that we have. We, we fear and revere God as judge, and he could judge, but he poured out his judgment on Christ on our behalf, and therefore we don't fear the men around us, the people around us and what happens, but we revere God, what God can do. I want God, and so he'll take care of me. He takes care of the sparrows. He, he's, he's infinite in his knowledge, infinite in his supply. He knows everything that's going on with me. Every torturous moment, every person in jail that comes to beat you, every, every verbal slander, every part of your reputation gets destroyed, every home you get kicked out of and run out of the country, every single Christian who's ever experienced all the things listed there in Hebrews, he knows it all and is caring for every detail of our lives. We're to teach this, the Bible says, to our children. They did not pass on the fear of God, Psalm 78 says. Israel did not pass it on to their children. The sayings of old should have been passed on, but they weren't. So, yeah, it's important. Other comments, questions, things you're thinking or encouraged by or the men might want to hear or need to hear? Yes, Dan Kreider. There's the man with the power right there. Matt, he's up in the box. He's, he's above all of us right now. I will self-audit. <laughs> I thought as you were, I just uh, brought to mind <clears throat> as you were reading about how we don't presume upon God and how the mark of a, of a true believer is going to be that, that confession of sin that's motivated by fear. Um, there's this passage in Valley of Vision that I came to mind. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite who sins more safely because grace may abound, who tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell, for he has saved. I just thought that was, hmm. that was striking and poignant. You know, the mark of my assurance, I appreciate you said that, is tied to the fact that when I sin against God, I feel a terror. Uh, it is a fear. It's, I know that I'm not judged, but... I feel that heaviness and that sickness. And um, then that causes me to run back to the Lord in repentance. Doesn't God use that, who he is, to drive us to repentance? That is the essence of chastening. Um, it's interesting that Hebrews 12, the passage on the discipline of the Lord brought to his people to chasten us, he brings that discipline that we might share in his holiness and so isn't it interesting that after a passage on discipline which as as the puritan prayer was expressing should not give us a casual relationship with sin because at the very end of that passage he says therefore strengthen strengthen those areas of sin and weakness otherwise the the limb that is weak, God may put it completely out of joint. So he's inciting in us a warning. Don't you fear what God may do with this area if you don't deal with it? You should. Even after he has just said, we're legitimate children of God. That's why we are being disciplined, because he loves us, and we, he wants us to share in his holiness. So you got this encouragement. Okay, okay, I know the Lord is in charge of all these disciplined things that are going on in my life. It moves me to repent of my sin. And yet at the end of it, there's a warning. Don't treat it casually. 
else God might have to give you a permanent scar. Yeah, very, very important. And the Puritans prayed like that because they just, they just ate this theology up. They knew it, embraced it. Yeah, other, right here. Matt, you want to just sit in the center aisle or? <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Um, I just think, you know, bringing those truths to, the, to our children, uh, you know, it, and you touched on it, right, that these issues that we're seeing um, in the lives of our children, right, in the lives, even in our own sanctification, how we, we perceive our sin, um, if, if we're not tracing things back to the root of the issue, we can be deceived to thinking that the issue is the influences in our life, the, uh, you know, the other people, uh, how we spend our time, those things. And, you know, we can start to put restraints in, you know, in the sense of almost Colossians 2, you know, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. When we're not doing, we're doing those things, but it's causing us to be distracted from fearing the Lord in those things, on why we put those things into place. And, and I think you touched that the fear of the Lord leads to that hatred of sin. And sometimes, you know, just in chatting with some of the young men from college and career, there's sometimes this acknowledgement of, man, you know, I'm seeing all the symptoms, I'm seeing all the, the fruits of my sin, but, and, and as I chop one down, another one comes out, I check one down, and, and there's just not that lack of, there's that lack of bringing it back to what's the real issue that I'm not believing. And, and oftentimes there's a, there's a lie that they're believing either about the character of God, uh, about the wickedness of sin. Uh, oh, well, this won't lead to that consequence because they're not seeing it from that fear of the Lord standpoint. So I thought it was very helpful just in, in how, how I instruct, you know, children. And you, you've got to understand who God is to understand that sin leads to suffering because this is who God is. This is who he says. This is what he says sin is. You know what I mean? So just very helpful. And, and his word, therefore, is that graceful wreath around your life. I mean, the first nine chapters of Proverbs just keeps saying that over and over again, comparing foolishness with wisdom and the benefits of the wisdom. It, it's a graceful wreath. It protects you. It, it hems you in. It gives you discernment. It helps you make decisions, stay away from the wrong friends, make good, wise principles out of your life. It is a graceful wreath. Um, but I think sometimes even in the Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13 sense, we, we know the verse says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we basically, when we're younger and trying to crank through this and we really see sin as problematic, which we ought to, we leave the verse at work out your salvation. But with reverence and humility is, is the key. Why? because it is God who is at work in you. Think about the reverence required in knowing that it is God who is at work in you, present tense. The ongoing sense of, of that reality, God is at work in me, willing and working for his good pleasure. It really does elevate our thoughts up to that sense of it. So when we're working out our salvation and we're grinding against sin we don't get off on either side we don't 
treat it casually. Yeah, God's working in me. Yeah, I don't have to strive. No, you do have to strive because that's the means by which God does his work, commanding you and you obeying the commands. And then you don't fall off the other side, which is I got to, oh my goodness, I got to do all this and I'm not doing it. And I'm, this, you know, people sometimes come in counseling and they're all bound up, I, you know, and in one sense, they're trying to embrace truths like work out your salvation. Because of the grace of God, cleanse yourself from all defilement. You know, they're, they're on that effort side. And then the movement comes along and says, look, it's not, don't, don't do any effort. And then this person hears that they're justified and they suddenly feel relief and they stop striving. That's a mistake. You've fallen off on that side and then swung the pendulum to the other side. Philippians 2 says both. You work out your salvation with humility and reverence, fear and trembling, because it is God through your striving in humility and reverence who is at work in you. And he's willing and working for his good pleasure. He's carrying out his will that way. So that, that keeps us in that balanced state. And I think you're right. The, the younger our kids hear that it's grounded in the fear of the Lord, a proper fear and reverence of the Lord for these reasons, uh, the more they grow up understanding a larger, deeper context uh, for, for the things they're always told to do. You know, we bring the law of God to them. Do this, don't do that. That's right. That's what the law of God is. It's, it's law. <laughs> and, and yet... Um, they're going to find out trying to obey the law that they can't. But if it is grounded in a fear of the Lord and they're called to fear him, then, then every time they sin, they know what the problem is. I don't fear him. Well, now you need a Savior because the Savior transforms your heart and puts the fear of God in, in your heart, Jeremiah said. So, yeah, it's good. Back here in the back. So the Bible uh, talk about the difference between... Can you put that mic right up there? The Bible talks about the difference between uh, a married man and a single man as far as ministry go. But um, when there's persecution and the threat of prison and death, um, how do a married man and a single man differ in their ministry uh, under the threat of, mur of being murdered or put in prison? Well, they're not any different under the threat of it. They both will honor Christ no matter what. Uh, when they go to jail or are imprisoned and pulled away from their family, a uh, single man doesn't have the prayer burden that the married man has. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that a married man, regardless of ministry or not, is concerned for the needs of his wife and his family. So if he were stripped of that and taken away from that, he has a greater prayer burden. He would likely want to know that his the resources that he has uh, achieved for whatever God has allowed and the friendships and the church that have 
been his body of Christ and family of God. He would pray that they would come around his family in his absence. Um, it's interesting, if you, if you want to maybe a, a way to see this work itself out, you might pick up the little volume, A Spectacle Unto God, which is the testament of the martyrdom of Christopher Love, a Puritan. And when he was arrested, taken away from his wife and children, Mary, his wife, wrote him letters when he was in the prison before his beheading. And in those letters back and forth, the testimony given to their children and the testimony from Christopher himself and his wife back to him was this same mindset. He had a burden for her care. Uh, he was following, no doubt, his Savior who was on the cross and was about to die and cared for his own mother by bringing John the Apostle as a surrogate son and caretaker uh, of Mary, his mother. Same thing, a married man who's going to go to prison for the gospel would want to have taught his family that this is what the Lord has, this is the sovereign purpose of God, and then he would try his best to ensure her practical care. And then he would have a greater prayer burden in prison. If you had that single guy and that pa single pastor and married pastor next to one another in the prison cell, uh, the, the married pastor would have personal burdens in his prayer that the single guy would not know. That might be the only difference. And if, if you had a different angle on that question, I, w I may have misunderstood it, but that's... That's pretty much what I would say. Just a heavier, heavier burden for others. But a single pastor who's shepherding God's sheep is burdened heavily for his sheep uh, in his absence because Satan loves to scatter the sheep when the shepherd is struck. So, yeah. It's interesting reading the persecutions. If you read Richard Wormbrand's experiences in Russia, you see how pastors were taken from their people all the time and and these accounts of um, what they did for their church and how their church rallied around families and a wife and children is very instructive in that way all right our time is gone let's pray lord thank you for the clarity of your truth and we just need so much grace and kindness from you yet sobriety from your truth to fear you and live like this. Help us pass this on to one another and to our families, our children, our wives, our friendships, disciples in our in, under our influence, that we may properly conduct ourselves in fear during our time on earth because we address you as Father. It's an intimate fellowship we have with you, how marvelous that is. It's, it's beyond comprehension that you would call us friends no longer enemies, and yet in our hearts you have planted by your spirit a reverence for you, a fear and trembling. We long to have both in good measure so that we're useful, so help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.